rise and shine. Pour yourself a cup of coffee and tune in to Good Morning Aurora. News, weather, and really cool interviews. Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 a.m. Good morning, Aurora. Good morning, Aurora. Good morning, Aurora. The time is now 8.15 a.m. And you are listening to Good Morning, Aurora, the second largest city's first daily news podcast. And we are here with a part two with a dear friend of the show, Kane County State's Attorney Candidate. <laughs> for now. Yeah, for now. You know what I'm saying? We're going to make that a reality. Jamie Mosser. Good to see you again. Back on the show. Thank Back you. on the show. The last time she was here... Um, you know, it was a much different atmosphere and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Now we got you on camera, but we're going to have a good show today because this discussion is going to be about the Citizens Review Board. Correct, yes. Right. Um, but we do have some news, weather and sports to get into, first of all. Okay. All right. Kick okay. it off. You know, just coming up in sports, we got tonight, the Bears are playing Tampa Bay. That's at 720. And then in basketball, the Lakers are going to be wearing Kobe Bryant-inspired jerseys at game five in uh, the nba finals they're up three to one in that series so they're hoping tonight that they're just going to clinch it and we can sit back and watch nice nice all right um so for you sports fans out there you know mamba that's all i gotta say um so monday the 12th at 9 a.m the city of aurora in conjunction with the quad county Urban League, Northern Illinois Food Bank, and Marie Wilkinson's Food Bank, excuse me, Food Pantry, will be hosting another pop-up food pantry, and that'll be at Phillips Park, 1000 Ray Moses Drive. No ideas necessary. First come, first serve. And shout-out to all involved for their hard work and serving our community. They've been doing that since the beginning of the mm-hmm. COVID epidemic, um, pandemic, rather. Um, so, you know, shout-out to all of them for continuing to keep people Fed. The current temperature is 45 degrees with a high of 70 today. Uh, that high will be reached around 2 p.m. Tomorrow will be a sunny day with a high of 81, and Saturday looks to be partly cloudy and 79 degrees. Uh, big shout-out and a special thing going on here. Tomorrow there's a ribbon cutting. Aurora Downtown is adding a musical garden to outdoor offerings. This will be a cutting tomorrow from 1.30 to 2 o'clock p.m. at Monday Park, which is adjacent to Water Street Mall and City Hall. Parking is available at the lot across from City Hall. We will post a link to the garden and to the crowd-free activities on our Facebook and Instagram pages. And that comes from our friends at Downtown Aurora. They do a very, excuse me, Aurora Downtown is actually what it would be. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can find out more about that organization. You can visit auroradowntown.org. Shout out to all of them. They are doing a great job. And starting this, uh, excuse me, oh, starting today, there's another round of the Change Initiative listening sessions taking place. Uh, Tonight will be at New England Church at 406 West Galena. Join Mayor Irvin and the Aurora police officials as they listen to your thoughts on policing and progress in Aurora. All sessions start at 6 p.m. Now, we have posted the um, breakdown of all of the episodes. Well, not episodes, the sessions. I'm in episode mode. My bad, yeah. y'all. <laughs> um, all of the sessions coming up, and they're all on a Thursday, and they all start at 6 p.m. So you can go to our Instagram and Facebook page to see that or go to the City of Aurora's website. Uh, for more information, go to auroratacil.org slash change to register, and you must register. Attack is a Navy term for a dash. So it's aurora-il.org. Uh, the COVID-19 Business Implication Survey report is out again. That's the second COVID-19 survey from the Aurora Regional Chamber of Commerce and Invest Aurora. Part of a series of surveys and reports aimed at measuring the impact and implications of COVID-19 on businesses across the Aurora region. The COVID-19 Business Implications Survey Report provides a close look at the data from 98 survey responses collected between September 8, 2020 and September 21, 2020. This information is brought to us by two great organizations, the Chamber of Commerce, aurorachamber.com, and InvestAurora, investaurora.org. And remember that digital applications for the CDBG Community Development Block Grant became available uh, on the 5th, and they must be submitted by 4 o'clock p.m. on Monday, October 23rd. It's also Breast Cancer Awareness Month, so we want to say a special um, or, you know, lend our voice to the fight uh, for breast cancer. We had a great interview yesterday with Healing to Healthy, Susan Romano and Amy Downing. Uh, My eyes were open in a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I think all of our collective team eyes were open. Um, So, you know, we want to say to to ladies, please take care of your health. And to everybody, please highlight uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. 
And, uh, oh, Charlie's Creamery. Try the pecan. She said pecan. Butter pecan. Butter pecan butter ice pecan. cream, yeah. I like the grapefruit. I'm not a butter pecan guy, but, you know, give it a scoop. You'll, it'll change your life. <laughs> that's a good place to go. All right. And with that, we now move into our wonderful interview with our dear friend. Good to see you. Good to see you. I'm happy to be back again. You look very squared away and legal today. Look like you're about, <laughs> to, about to send somebody to jail. Like, you're going down, sucker. Um, so we are here to talk about the Citizens Review Board. Yes. Okay. Uh, but for those who are unfamiliar with you, just take a brief moment, introduce yourself, um, your position, who you are, where you're from. Great. So my name is Jamie Mosser. I'm running to be the next Kane County State's Attorney. Mm -hmm. I have been running for a little over a year now in terms of this campaign. And I, I'm excited to talk about the Citizens Review Board today because that was not one of my original platforms. I hadn't even thought about this. Um, as I've been in this campaign, I've been, I've, I'm lucky enough to have talked to a lot of people pre-COVID, of course. Mm -hmm. And when we were knocking on doors and we were going to events and we were speaking with people from the North End to the South End, we saw a lot of issues that were resonating that about people not trusting the criminal justice system. And that wasn't just police officers. It was the prosecution. It was everything because a lot of people don't really know about it unless you're actually involved in it. Right. And Curtis, I'm super excited to watch your podcast of your jury experience because with the exception of being in the criminal justice system because you were arrested for something, it's that's the other way is to sit on a jury and to find out about it. Right. So we started to see that there was this issue and we started to research it and really look into what we can do. And then obviously we've seen horrific cases come up with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And you really need to start taking a look at how we can be responsive in the criminal justice system. And that's when this idea for the Citizens Review Board really solidified for what we wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Because the problem is, as a community, if we don't understand or trust our criminal justice system, we are never going to see the type of change that we need. We have to bridge that relationship. We have to go back to a time where we can challenge somebody without it being something that is wrong. Protests are right. We should protest things. We should protest injustices without somebody coming in saying that that's not right. This is the way that we've done it. This is the way we've always done it. Right. So to the, the Citizens Review Board is that. It is going to be a review board made up of seven individuals, all who have to live in Kane County, because these are people who are invested in our community. Those individuals then will be able to review any case that comes before the state's attorney's office of an officer charged with a criminal offense, or if it's a current case that's charged and there's an allegation of misconduct by the police officer. This review board will be able to take a look at what we have, the investigation, the police reports, the photographs, the 911 recordings, and then they will be able to publicly say that what I decided at the state's attorney's office was correct or incorrect. And the reason why we're doing this is because this is a, the King County state's attorney's office represents the people of King County. Mm -hmm. But we, aren't, we don't do this by ourselves or without involving the community. We must involve the community. And in order for the community to know that what we're doing is right, they have to actually have access to it. And they also have to be encouraged then to speak out either for or against what happens so that people know what is going on is right. And more importantly, because this is an elected office, mm -hmm. we are giving them the ability to say it's wrong. Because if the only way to do that is to elect me out of office after four years, shouldn't they have more of an ability to say that through the four years that I'm there and not just wait until injustices happen? Right. Right. So that's why we've created this board. Jamie, what will this board look like? So we're going to have seven individuals. And now keep in mind, this is what we've created as a suggestion based on investigating or researching, I guess, many different um, communities within Illinois and outside of Illinois. Mm -hmm. So this may change because we have to do what's actually right for King County. But right now, what we've suggested is it's going to be seven different individuals. 
We're going to right now have four lawyers who are on it because they have to understand the system. That's very important. They have to understand what the burden of proof is that we have to have. They have to understand the different legal concepts, the elements that we have to prove for a case. If there's a defense, um, self-defense, anything like that, they have to be able to understand that. So it's important to have lawyers on this board. There's going to be three people who are not lawyers at all. And we would like somebody who has some sort of investigative background because that's going to be essential to talk about this is what happened during the investigation, this is what should have happened during the investigation, or this is additional information that we need. At least two people have to reside in Elgin. Two people have to reside in Aurora because we want to make sure that of the two biggest communities that we have in King County, and frankly, the two communities where we see the most arrests happen, And I want this to be very clear, not where the most crime happens, where the most arrests happen, Aurora and Elgin. I want to make sure that they're represented. And then we're also going to have at least four of those individuals be people of color, because I want this to be really representative of our community and not just a panel of individuals. And so that's what we're going to do to get this initial board. The initial board will be selected by myself, along with the King County Public Defender, And then from that point forward, I will have no control over who is on that board because anyone who leaves that board, the board itself will elect new people to come onto the board. So that way it's truly not controlled by the state's attorney. It's a citizen's review board. Got it. Um, Are you familiar with Brady versus Maryland? Yes, very much so. Talk about Brady versus Maryland. So Brady versus Maryland is the concept that if there's anything that tends to show that the defendant did not commit the offense, we have to turn that over. It's ethically what we should be doing anyway, but this case came out because of evidence that wasn't turned over that showed that a person um, could not or maybe did not do a crime. So, for example, let's talk about um, a domestic violence case. So this is, um, in addition to Breast Cancer Awareness Month, it's Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And let's say we received a statement from a neighbor that said, I heard them fighting. I heard the victim, or who we've identified as the victim, slap the defendant beforehand and say, now I'm going to call the police. Now, we've arrested the male in the situation because she said he did this to me. If we had that evidence and we didn't turn it over, that's a violation of the Brady rule because that's evidence that shows that he is unlikely to have committed the offense. That's also So now is that the same as or is that? different than the discovery process and all of that? It should be in the discovery process. So the discovery process says that we have to turn over everything. So Brady versus Maryland would Mm -hmm. be a case of that being established because that did not happen in the discovery process. Correct. Yes. Because if you have a Brady violation, it means that you had information that showed that the offender didn't do the crime and you didn't turn it over. Discovery says that we have to turn over everything. So as prosecutors, we have an ethical duty to give you everything. There's no trial by ambush. Anytime you've watched Law and Order and all of a sudden they're bringing in some brand new evidence and the defendant's like, what? I've never seen that before. That doesn't happen in our case. Yeah, that don't happen at all. (laughs) Right. No, because we have rules. We have laws and we have to follow those. Brady came about because the discovery way back then was we're going to turn over everything that shows that the person did it. Well, that's great. We should do that. But if we have other evidence, we have to turn over everything. I want to read something to you. Pursuant to 50 ILCS 727-et-al, called the Police and Community Relations Improvement Act, Mm -hmm. each police department must have a written policy regarding the investigation of officer-involved deaths. The statute further dictates the expertise of the needed investigators in King County. The major crimes task force, as agreed to by all chiefs of police, conduct these investigations. Um, Each police department must have a written policy regarding the investigation of of officer-involved deaths. Are there police departments that don't have policies regarding that? I don't know. I'd have to check with that. I believe they all do because once this was done, I know the state's attorney's office made a really big push to make sure that everybody understood that they had to have this written policy in place. Okay. And we do. Our major crimes task force is up and running. They have been for a number of years because they do more than just 
investigate officer-involved death cases. If there is a murder that happens, they can be called out to deal with that. If there is a, a very intense investigation in which somebody, there needs to be expertise with it, they get called out for that. And they're just made up of people from the different police departments, essentially. Um, so Citizens Review Board made up of seven volunteer members. <clears throat> Excuse me. The initial board shall be selected by the Kane County State's Attorney in conjunction with the Kane County Public Defender, like you said. Mm -hmm. Um the Kane County Public Defender, is there one public defender? Yes. Okay. Her name is Rochelle Conant. She has worked in the Public Defender's Office for a long time. Um, she was recently just appointed to be the head public defender. And so everybody who works for her then are assistant public defenders, much like everybody who would work for me are assistant state's attorneys. Aha. Uh -huh. Yes. Okay. Very similar. So she's not an elected position. She's an appointed position. So she got appointed by the judges in Kane County. Got it. Interesting. Mm -hmm. How long would somebody be on that board, or could they be on that board? So we have two-year terms, okay. and then with the option of have to do this three different times, so six years total. Okay. Because we want to make sure that we don't have somebody who's there forever. I, I really do believe in term limits. I think that <laughs> anybody who has a, a, a lifetime appointment, the only thing that that serves to do is either allow somebody to be lazy throughout all of it because you're never going to get fired, essentially. Right. Or you just have somebody who maybe shouldn't be there because they're just not doing the right thing that they're, they should be doing. All other members shall be added by the committee mm -hmm. upon majority vote upon the resignation of or end of term for a member. And we have two-year terms. Mm -hmm. Am I correct in that? Yes. So two-year terms up to six years total. So okay. after six years, you're not able to come back onto the board. Okay. All right. Um, now, I want to go to – this is a great – I told you it's going to be a good conversation. I'm I, ready for this. Uh, <laughs> I'm telling you, when I got – when you sent me this, I was like, yes. We're, you know, I went mm -hmm. over this with a couple of fine-tooth combs, and I have no hair. <laughs> so that goes to show you how dedicated I was. Um, make a – so I want to ask a couple of things about – so just make a diagram of the scene with measurements, and this is coming from mm -hmm. the investigation part. Number five, make a diagram of the scene with measurements. Mm -hmm. Thoroughly photograph the scene. And six is collect all available audio and video recordings from body cameras, police vehicles, pod cameras, security slash surveillance cameras, red light cameras, etc. When I look at this and I see, like number 11, obtain victims' medical records. Number 12, obtain officers' medical records. Mm -hmm. Has there been or do you anticipate pushback from officers their unions mm -hmm. or what what what's what's that what's the flavor so i do not believe that the majority of officers will push back on this okay. and the only reason why is i know that the majority of the officers are good officers who take that oath seriously and do their job in the best possible way i know that those officers are also the same officers who want the person who murdered George Floyd to be prosecuted because they're there to make sure that the people who do a crime get arrested and go get go before the court. So I think those officers aren't going to have an issue with this because they're not the officers that we need to be concerned with. Right. I think there is going to obviously be pushback probably from the union in this case because some of the stuff already is in line with what that um, statute that you cited earlier, Curtis. And so for everybody who is listening right now, this is the policy that we've written that's going on our website today. And it's going to be up there so people can look at it and so that people can comment on it and they can criticize it. And then we're going to look at it to see how we can strengthen what we're doing. And so when elected, this is going to go into place. And we are also going to know that as time goes by and we realize that this worked, this didn't work, we're going to change this. But we have to do that with community involvement, which is why I'm so excited to come here and talk to you about it and then also put it on our website so we can really get a good discussion going about this. Yeah, I'm really happy to see this. I really am. Um, now, let's go to prosecutorial standards. Mm -hmm. um, it starts off pursuant to the American Bar Association Criminal Justice Standard 3 Tech 4 
1.3a, a prosecutor should seek or file criminal charges only if the prosecutor reasonably believes that the charges are supported by probably, that's a typo. I don't know who wrote this, but it's probable cause. Probable cause. I mean, probably a brother cause. just probably call, a brother just letting yes. you know, right? I saw that like. Ugh. See, this is the kind of editing I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, supported by probable cause mm-hmm. that admissible evidence will be sufficient to support conviction beyond a reasonable doubt, and that the decision to charge is in the intent. Excuse me, in the interests of justice. Mm-hmm. In addition to the criminal statutes alleged to have been violated, there are other important statutes to consider for officer involved cases. Mm-hmm. What's probably, in your opinion, what's one of the most important statutes to consider for officer-involved cases? Well, so the initial one is whatever the actual charge is. That's the first one, because in any charge that we have, there's elements that we have to prove. Right. And so, again, you're, you're going to have to look into this. So let's say tragedy happens in King County and we have an officer-involved shooting. Mm-hmm. So person, um, citizen gets shot by a police officer. The first thing that you have to look at is all of our murder statutes. You have to look at first degree, you have to look at second degree, and you have to see what the actual elements are. That's the first thing that you always have to do. And then as cited in there, there's different laws that are looked at in every case, and then one in particular when it deals with a police officer. In any case, there's always the idea, is there self-defense? Was there an act of aggression on the part of the person who was shot? You need to look at every single one of those and put it in application to the facts that we have. There's a specific statute that also deals with officers and their use of force and what they're able to do. You have to take a look at every single one of those before you make a final decision. But it all starts with the initial charge, what the allegation of the crime is. Because if you prove that, the next step then is, are there these other factors, these other statutes that you need to look into? Who were all of the people who were initially involved in the, uh, in, you know, the process which became the Citizens Police Review Board? So they were, um, poli- or I had a, a couple police officers take mm-hmm. a look at it. I had some local attorneys. Any people- friends of ours that we know? Can we shout any shout outs we want to? No, not right now. Okay, They're, all right, will, all right, yeah. all right. Because, yeah, it's it's <laughs> one it. of those where um, they really want to be invested in it, but there's we have to see how it goes is what it Certainly. is. Certainly. Yes. We had a lot of local defense attorneys who took a lot, look at it. And then I had former prosecutor friends of mine, so people who are no longer at the office, people who um, did their years there to take a look at it from their perspective. Right. And then we had community people, people that I had just met through campaigning who were really interested in it. I collected a lot of emails and I just sent it out and I said, take a look at this. And so we got the perspective of former prosecutors, police officers, criminal defense attorneys and citizens before we released this. Mm, mm, mm. That's great that you did reach out to them and get their opinion for a lot of these important topics. And I mean, people are excited about this, but people are also nervous about it because they're nervous about what it's going to do and what it's going to say. I have heard that somebody said that this is mob rule by letting people do this, that it's mob rule. Right. And so I have a very big problem with that because it's not mob rule. It's citizen led. And why have we decided not to let them? Why have we said that because I got elected to this position, because I have a law degree, that somehow I, my judgment, can't be put into question by anybody else. Yes. I saw some stuff that was like, oh, look at this radical agenda. They're going to get, you know, silly. Right. Absolutely silly. Um, So in in purpose, top, Mm -hmm. the strained relationship between the community and law enforcement has reached a critical point because of recent and highly publicized officer-involved deaths. This mistrust is born of a long history of systemic issues within some police departments relative to minority races in the United States. Certain laws, such as making the possession of crack cocaine a more serious offense than the possession of powder cocaine, exacerbated the problem. Now, this is for uh, this has nothing to do with breaking down the discrepancy between powder cocaine and crack cocaine. and, and that. Uh, but I do like that that was in there. Mm-hmm. So in your opinion, can you talk about um, the effect of that systemic problem in uh, in sentencing and things like that uh, ov- and overall in policing and 
the system of justice. Yes. So we talked about this a little bit last time when I was on. So our original police departments, the police departments that we created way back when, when slavery was around, Mm -hmm. the whole concept was they were supposed to control slaves, make Mm -hmm. sure that slaves were where they were supposed to be. Now, policing has obviously transformed itself over time. And then the really big problem happened in the 70s and 80s when we decided to have our war on poverty and our war on drug, on drugs. The war on poverty was supposed to be great, equal access to justice. Sounded um, wonderful. Right. Yeah. It did. It sounded like we're really going to equalize the economic injustices that we have, and that's not what happened. Right. Now, we did create certain things like legal aid. Prairie State Legal Services, who I used to work for, came about because of the war on poverty. That's where Legal Services Corporation was created that gave the money that allows attorneys to come in and represent people who don't have money in civil cases. Because in criminal cases, obviously, you have the public defender. Civil cases, you didn't have that until, obviously, we had organizations like that. Mm. So there were some great, great things that happened. But the war on drugs didn't because what, it, what we did is we said using a drug is a crime. We didn't look at why people are using drugs. We didn't look at addiction issues. We didn't look at anything that really was the medical or the science behind everything. And so we said, you are a criminal because you use drugs. And that's where the stigma started. And so we pumped money after money into organizations. Our DEA was created as a result of it, the Drug Enforcement Agency. And what all that did was target people who use or sell drugs to put them in jail, to put them in prison. Hmm. And we kept doing that. And what you saw was an increase in money to law enforcement and a decrease in money to social services, to our shelters, to um, places where they can get addiction counseling, to domestic violence agencies, to food pantries. We lost that funding because it was being given somewhere else. For all the people that needed the help and had the resources Correct. available. But then there's the stigma. So let's say in 1995, you um, were caught with cocaine. That's a felony offense. Let's say you didn't even go to prison. You just were convicted of a felony offense. Well, since that time, you've had a felony on your record because of an addiction that you had. Not because when you were younger, you thought to yourself, I know what I'm going to grow up to be. I'm Mm going to grow up to be a felon. This sounds amazing. Nobody grows up thinking that. They grow up wanting to be teachers and doctors and lawyers But what happens is because of things beyond their control, addiction issues happen. And if you really look into this, there are people who um, it's in their genes. You know, they have an addictive personality as a result of everything. Um, There's so many reasons why. If you have trauma when you're younger as a child, that could be something that causes you to do this. And then once the addiction takes root in you, it is really difficult to undo that without really having access to services. And because we've taken away a lot of those services and instead criminalized that behavior, that's where this problem happened. Mm-hmm. So we targeted communities. We targeted people. We criminalized them. We stigmatized everything. And frankly, where the officers were directed, and not because they necessarily chose, but because of the laws that we created, like the broken windows law, where essentially you're going to a place that looks like it might be a problem. So a poorer community. Yeah. And if people think that that's not real, I know (laughs) it is real. And so and this is why we have if you look at the criminal cases that come before, Mm -hmm. there's three different ways, really, that you see it happen. One is a 911 call. A 911 call is a request for assistance. So if somebody breaks into my house, I'm calling 911. I'm asking the police to come to me. The other way is a police officer just happens upon it. That's usually like a DUI offense. Um, You know, a person's drunk, driving through, inevitably going to Taco Bell. I find that in a lot of my DUI reports is that they're driving through Taco Bell. Don't go to Taco Bell. Yeah, sometimes (laughs) they pass out while waiting for their tacos. But um, so, or the other way is directed policing. And directed policing is we think we know where crime is going to happen, like drug crime. So we're going to go there and we're going to arrest people who we think are committing a crime or who we see committing a crime. Right. But who decides the directed policing? Why is it that there's more directed policing in Aurora and Elgin than there is in St. Charles, Geneva, and Batavia? Because I can tell you, being a St. Charles resident, crime happens. Drug use happens there. It happens at a much more frequent rate than anybody sees in our criminal justice system. Right. And part of that could be, in St. Charles, maybe the 
direction that it goes in is, hey, this is an addiction. Let's get them some help. Let's refer them to the services that we have. Whereas in Aurora and Elgin, it's, well, let's let the police deal with it. Right. And that's an issue. Um, all right. So, man. Every time you come on here, just you know, I gotta remember myself. Oh, we got questions. Yeah, yeah, we gotta, we gotta flow. Okay, Uh, decision by the Citizens Review Board. Mm -hmm. So the Kane County State's Attorney uh, and its employees shall have no direct contact or communication with the Citizens Review Board regarding its decisions. However, the board members can request additional information in writing to the Kane County State's Attorney's Office. Upon a decision being made, the board will make a written decision that shall be placed on the website of the Kane County State's Attorney's Office. That decision will either agree with or disagree with the charging decision made by the Kane County State's Attorney. So that sounds to me like there is still a review process and a kind of screening within the Citizens Review Board even after decisions have been made. Is that a fair statement? Yes. So uh, when we were looking at this, we tried to figure out if there's a way that the Citizens Review Board could possibly have this information before a decision was made by me. Right. But it's too impossible with the timing of everything. So if somebody's taken into custody, we have to bring them before a judge with charges within 48 hours. So we're on a time limit. And obviously these are going to be citizens with our community, so we can't expect to put up like the citizens review bat signal and they all appear to do everything, right? Right. So um, the idea is that there will already be a decision made. So there's either going to be a decision to charge or not charge, to keep a case or dismiss a case. Then they have time to review it, and it's up to the citizens review board on their time. We're not going to force them to do it within a certain time period. But we are going to take that decision and put it right on our website so that we know exactly what it is and people can easily access it. More transparency. Yes, full transparency. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, when we look at what it is and why people believe this or what the facts of the case are, what I think is going to happen is our community is going to have a better understanding of why we charge cases and why we don't charge certain cases. I want to bring up what's happening right now with the Breonna Taylor case in Kentucky. So the grand jury, for those of you who don't know, is selected, um, first created, by the way, in the Constitution, so it's in there. But the grand jury is selected by the state's attorney's office. People come in. We interview those people. We make sure that they understand what the process is for a grand jury. And then they sit on this grand jury for three months. Yes. And they hear cases but not how you think they hear cases. What happens is one witness usually comes in, the state's attorney asks questions of that one witness, usually a police officer, by the way, and they can testify about everything, what this person said, what this evidence showed, things like that. And then the grand jury returns a true bill, which means it's indicted, or not a true bill, and then we have to either go to a probable cause hearing or we have to dismiss the case. But what's important to know about that is It's basically controlled by the state's attorney's office at that point. We bring in one witness. We ask the questions. We don't have to present everything. That's important to know. And so for the Breonna Taylor case, this obviously was much more extensive than one witness. They brought in uh, 15 hours worth of people there. Mm -hmm. The grand jury proceedings are secret. Not even the person who's accused of the crime gets to be in there. Not even the defendant's attorney gets to be in there. And then this stuff isn't released to the public. It's released as a part of discovery, but not to the public. And so this grand juror in the Breonna Taylor case actually filed something to get everything released so that this grand juror can talk about what happened with it. So what's happening there is unusual. It's not what usually happens because now it's been released. Um, So this is a case of people wanting to know what it was that happened in a court system. They demanded it. Somebody filed a court action, and now we know. That's the same concept of what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to provide the information that our community deserves to know. If we're not going to charge somebody, then I want them to know why. But more importantly, I want it not to just come from my words because they're not going to start off trusting me. Because there's no reason to. They don't know me. They haven't had an opportunity to sit down and talk to me. They haven't seen how I've prosecuted cases before. But when the citizens get that chance, 
And they get that chance to say, yes, this is right. Yes, what she did is right. Yes, this is the way it should be. Then that's where the trust comes from. And then we're going to build on that in our community to show that this investigation happened the way that it should. Charges did or did not get filed, and this is the reason why. And our community then is a part of it. We're going to jump back into the review board here in a moment. I just want to ask, uh, what was your opinion of the uh, decision in the uh, Brianna Taylor case? So I'm probably within the first hour of looking at all of the recordings with everything. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to listen to everything. I do know that there's a discrepancy in people saying that there were, the officers did announce themselves mm -hmm. versus not announcing themselves. And that's that's an important distinction because right. for those of us in our community, no-knock warrants are allowed in Illinois. They are? They are. Y'all better stay woke. <laughs> so no-knock warrants essentially mean that the police officers have gone to the judge and have said that there's some sort of danger either to the community or to the police if we give notice of what we're doing. So I want you to think about that. You're in your house. You don't hear this is the police. You just hear somebody breaking into your house. What are you going to do? Bus. Right. And so it's a terrifying, the whole thing is a sad reality, sad tragic that could happen here in Illinois. And so I'm going through everything still because I, I want to make an informed opinion when I say all of this. Okay. And here's why I asked you that question. Mm -hmm. um, I used to live in California. And uh, I lived in San Diego. And not too far away from where I lived, I lived in Chula Vista. Uh, it wasn't a bad place at all, but there's a lot of gangs around. Not too, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, no-knock warrants. You got people sometimes, you know, these people, there there are people out there who have felonies that you wouldn't believe, mm -hmm. known criminals um, with a history of attacking police, with a history of violence against officers, resisting arrest up to and including danger. Right. Aggravated discharge of a firearm in an officer. Mm-hmm. So the idea of not wanting to announce your presence mm -hmm. as you get all 18 members of this street gang, I'm cool with it. Right. The problem for me is, is that, uh, and I wasn't privy to the evidence that they had to make them want to do a no-knock warrant on a mm -hmm. Breonna Taylor apartment with her, with her boyfriend. The problem for me is, is that how could what I could see happening for members of the whatever gang, mm -hmm. how could that slip through the cracks and be misconstrued to have that happen at a house where you got a girl and her boyfriend? You know what I'm saying? Right, absolutely. What You know, what is it that makes the system, maybe you don't know this answer, what is it that makes the system break down like that? Who drops right. the ball there? What, what is the... Well, and that's something that they're going to have to look into because in order to get a no-knock warrant, that's on your search warrant, your request for a search warrant, because this has to be granted by a judge, which means you're going before a judge and you're providing information. Mm -hmm. And this information is we believe that this house has drugs in it. And the reason why we believe it is we've been watching the house, we've seen this kind of activity, or we have a confidential informant who actually we sent in to buy drugs from them. Right. That confidential informant came out with drugs. So there's that. Yeah. The next threshold that they have to meet, though, is that danger to the community or that danger to the police officers. And what you're saying is those gang members, the people who have all those charges and the ag discharge and they're known to have weapons. Yeah. That's a threshold that they're supposed to meet. It shouldn't just be, well, um, we think that there may be a problem. There That's, should be some yeah. evidence. Right. And, and I understand it, too, the same way. I don't want officers going into something, announcing their presence, and suddenly getting shot at. Yeah. Because you're basically putting a target on yourself. Right. There has to be a happy medium in between those two. And that's why just, again, this knowledge to our community has to happen. Like, our community has to understand why we do things. It's so shrouded in secrecy right now that for you, when you said that, I absolutely understand why an officer would not want to knock and announce his presence if he's been shot at or other officers have been shot at by this particular individual before. 
we need to get that information out so that people understand it. Because I think what happens is when we say you're not entitled to this information, it makes people mistrust the system even more. It is insulting. Yeah, because mm-hmm. uh, the incident I was mentioning, I came outside um, and um, so I lived on Avenue L. Shout out to Avenue L and everybody who knows about Avenue L uh-huh. <laughs> right by the Chula Vista Mall. So I'm going uh, about to be approaching the five freeway. Mm-hmm. And yeah, on one of my local streets, like the cops had it shut down. They had the SWAT vehicle out mm-hmm. there. And that's what they do. They simultaneously hit the houses of the the Red Steps, the notorious right. gang. They simultaneously hit the houses of a couple of these guys. Mm-hmm. And they don't announce their presence. They just boom, go in. And right. they whatever time in the morning, they going through the whole demonstration. Right. And these are violent criminals mm-hmm. so i can i hey right i get it i understand that yeah. but the brianna taylor that's the that's the thing so yeah mm-hmm. i understand that and there's yeah. you know and that's why we need to stop hiding behind it's our job we get to make the decision yeah that's not good enough anymore no right? it's absolutely not um so let's uh let's move on let's move on to the let's let's <laughs> move on in the citizens review board all right now we are in the section of prosecutor prosecutorial standards again um can you tell us about people versus white okay i'm trying to remember which one that was i can give a little uh yes so, please okay so its point states in people versus white if justifiable force is a defense in a murder prosecution when the person's belief is reasonable even if it if is mistaken. mistaken yes that was a i gotta tell you Mm-hmm. I kept looking at that like, what the hell is, yeah, right. explain that. So, I mean, the best example that I can give is the Jason Van Dyke trial and Laquan McDonald. Right. So Jason Van Dyke was an officer, was charged obviously with first degree murder. Mm-hmm. Now he was found guilty of second degree murder because of that, because his mistaken belief essentially. And so that's that's one example of what I can give. Um, the There's so many other examples throughout law like somebody shoots somebody because they believe like let's switch that around for brianna taylor let's say if brianna taylor had shot one of the police officers would brianna taylor then have that as a defense because it was her belief that somebody was breaking into her house not that a police officer was coming in to execute a search warrant so that's a mistaken belief does that make sense it does okay it does it does i um as a citizen mm-hmm. who um does not have a background in uh the law um it is hard to grasp and get my head around a little it bit. is because it, it's all fact-based when you take a look at this but again that's one of the things that we have to look at when we're charging a case is what was the belief of the person when the killing happened because in the Jason Van Dyke case, mm-hmm. I think, if I'm not mistaken, his whole defense was Laquan McDonald had a knife. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it wasn't no Crocodile Dundee-looking machete, right. which was obvious in the video. Um, so I just don't, you know, I, I don't see how that holds any water. Well, so and the rationale that came down for that was that he was unreasonable in the shooting of Laquan McDonald, which is why it ultimately wasn't first-degree murder. First-degree murder is the intent to kill or commit great bodily harm. I was going to ask what the difference was between the two. You beat me to it. Yes, so there you go. (laughs) And so what happened was the reason why it was second-degree murder is because there was that unreasonable belief, his belief that he had to defend himself. So that's why it didn't come out because the intent that the judge found wasn't that— or that was found in the trial wasn't that he intended to kill him, but he had this unreasonable belief that he had to defend himself or the other officers that were there, which is why it ultimately came down to second-degree murder. Got it. And so this, the quirks that we have in law, again, are some of the things that when I see this and I'm talking to people about it and you sit down and you explain it, it's it's sometimes like a light bulb. And not because I'm smarter than everybody, but it's because this is the area of law that I've come in. Right. 
it's the same thing for other people. When something happens and they explain it, I'm like, oh, well, that makes perfect sense. Right. And so that's the whole point of this review board is because I think that we've stopped doing that. We've stopped really giving people the information that we're supposed to. We've stopped saying, let's have a discussion about what it is that we did. We just say, this is the rule. That's it. Accept it. Yes. Without giving them a voice mm-hmm. to challenge, accept the, the reasoning behind that. Correct. Yes. What is admissible evidence? So admissible evidence is anything that was obtained legally. Um, Wait a minute. Hold on. Let me yes. stop right there. Yes. Admissible evidence is mm-hmm. anything that was attained legally. Correct. That would make me think that evidence is able to be used if it's attained illegally. No, because that's why we do motions to suppress. Okay. So if so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if so, like, damn, y'all, what the hell? <laughs> well, and that's happened, unfortunately, where people get evidence, and then as a result of it, let's say a forced, coercive um, interview. So you're in... James Burke, Chicago PD type of thing. Correct, yes. So let's say you arrest somebody. You do not give them their Miranda rights, so their right to remain silent. And then, or let's say you beat that person and that person gives a statement. Well, that was obtained illegally. And if that is suppressed, not allowed to come in, also anything that was able to be discovered from that is considered the fruit of the poisonous tree and is also barred from coming in. So, for example, if you beat somebody and they say, yes, I have cocaine in my truck, I have cocaine in my house, I have cocaine at my office. All of that doesn't come in because that statement was obtained illegally. Got it. So the other thing is admissibility is also relevant. We, can't, we have to have relevant evidence that comes in. In a lot of cases, these are 911 recordings. There are um, witnesses who come in and testify. There's evidence that is seen that's found. There's photographs. We have to look at what is admissible. Right. There's a case that I cite in there, Garrity, um, which is really particularly um, important for police officers. Police officers, as a very nature of their job, can be ordered to answer a question, which is different from you and I. If a police officer comes up to me and says, you need to tell me what happened, I can say, no, I don't have to. But because of their job, a police officer is ordered to do it. So let's just give an example. Police officer goes to a bar um, as a citizen, drinks, um, gets into a bar fight. And let's say that police officer gets arrested by another police officer. Um, The investigation happens. If that officer is treated or ordered to answer the questions because you're going to lose your job if you don't do it, those statements can't come in in any type of a criminal case. They get the same protections that you and I do in terms of the Fifth Amendment that they don't have to answer questions. Got it. And so that's another important thing because when an officer is interviewed, if that officer is interviewed by their own department and that's uh, a sergeant, a lieutenant, the chief says you have to answer this question or you're going to lose your job, they're compelled to do it, which means that evidence can't come in. Got it. Got it. Understood. Interesting. The time is now 9.02 a.m. And you are listening to Good Morning Aurora, the second largest city's first daily news podcast. And we have been sitting here talking with our friend Jamie Mosser about the Citizens Review Board. Very, very important. Um, you got a lot of stuff going on today. Yes. So, uh, you, I mean, you got, <laughs> you, got, you got coffee to sip and conversations on the curb to have. You've got more great stuff um, campaigning today or yes. getting out there and for the people yeah. yes also today at 5 p.m we're going to be doing a live um event through facebook for domestic violence awareness month okay we are going to bring the wonderful cassandra tanner miller on the show along with martha paschke who's running for state rep uh in the 65th okay. district which is not aurora okay. that's over by elgin i was about to say i don't know that name Who is <laughs> that? we're going to have a great discussion with them about our domestic violence laws and cassandra's going to talk about her um sad story of losing her son to domestic violence okay and we're going to talk oh. about how the prosecutor's office can do better in terms of domestic violence and what laws we need to change so it's going to come from a perspective of a person who survived the system uh, me who has prosecuted cases and wants to, and want to go back to do even better, and then how our legislator um, can change that. 
Interesting. And that's at 5 p.m.? That's at 5 p.m. today. Streaming on your Facebook page? Yes, it is. On your Facebook? Okay. On Facebook. And, and then, what is your Facebook page? Um, it is uh, Mosser for King County. Okay. Our website is www.mosserforkingcounty.com. And then we'll put everything on YouTube and we'll link it on Twitter and Instagram. Um, we also have October 13th. We're going to be doing another Facebook Live presentation with... The creators of LEAD, which is Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion, we talked about this a little on the last one, where the idea is instead of arresting somebody, we're referring them right to services, to treatment, to resources, to housing. We're trying to make sure that the people who have mental health issues, drug addiction issues, or just lack resources aren't put through the criminal justice system. We're trying to divert them elsewhere. I think that's great. Um, The show ends on a positive note. What's your message for the residents of Kane County today? So my message is we need change. And the only way to get change is to elect people who want to bring change. If you hear anybody say, well, it seems to be working just fine, then you don't want that person because you want somebody who actually wants to always do better. And knowing that sometimes we're going to fail. And if we fail, we pick ourselves up and we figure out how to do it better the next time. And that's what I want to bring to King County. I've worked in this community. I live in this community. I'm raising my three kids in this community. I want this community to be great for everyone, no matter where they live. And that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do this with people coming and criticizing, with people coming and offering compliments but we're going to do it with an open discussion. So even when I'm elected, Curtis, I am coming back to Good Morning Aurora. Oh, for sure. Because we're going to continue this discussion because this is the only way that people can really be involved and make a difference. And that's what I want to do. I want to do more for King County. That has been my slogan, is to do more for King County, and that's what it's going to be when I'm elected. So don't forget to vote November 3rd. Um, voting is happening right now. It is super safe. They have sanitizer. People are wearing masks. You can drop off ballots. You can still request mail-in ballots, but just vote because your voice is your vote. That's right. On behalf of Good Morning Aurora and Jamie Mosser, we want to say thank you to everyone. Vote and please be cognizant of Breast Cancer Awareness Month and Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Yes. This has been a great episode. Uh, We will see you all back here tomorrow morning on the second largest city's first daily news podcast. I want to say thank you to Jamie. Thank you to the staff. Thank thank you you to everybody. And thank you to all of our listeners. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube page. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And with that, we out. Peace.